The Lord be with you. Let us pray. Thank you, Father, for this day and all that it represents for the life of this church. We thank you for those who are being confirmed. We thank you for uh, the wonderful breakfast. We thank you, most of all, for your word and for how you reveal yourself to us in it. As we begin to contemplate uh, your passion this week and next week, we pray that you would draw our hearts to love you and to be grateful for you, to be humbled before you, and to follow you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, it is nice to see all of you. I know there's going to be some going in and going out with uh, confirmation. I know a lot of families had uh, either an early brunch for Mother's Day or, or uh, an afterwards or something like that. So, uh, But so nice to see you all, especially uh, to see you on Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day to all of you. Um, I want to just uh, say we're going to begin two weeks, even though it is Easter, that's just where we fall in the, uh, in the E100. So we're going to talk this week about the Last Supper, really the last night of Jesus' life. And then next week we'll talk, talk both about crucifixion and resurrection, uh, death and resurrection. So I want to uh, begin, we're in Luke chapter 22, and we want to uh, begin to talk about the Lord's Supper, and particularly uh, the, the Passover meal. Now, one of the things that I love about, and probably you love too, about our tradition, our denominational tradition, is that we have uh, the Eucharist every week. Uh, some of you grew up in, uh, in this tradition or in another tradition that celebrated the Eucharist every week. Some of you did not, and that is new to you, and you have found uh, it incredibly comforting. Now, when we do it every week, and we do it the way we do it, which is I, is I don't write a new prayer uh, every week. It's the same words every week. What is the danger of that? Rote. It gets to be rote. Monotonous. You start thinking about something else, and the dinner you're going to... No, did I turn the... Crock pot on before I left today, and um, and where do what what children have I not heard from lately, and all this things because the words go. It takes discipline to remember the import of the meal. Uh, we are going to talk about Jesus' meal in the context of the Passover, and um, and then pull that back around uh, to our service of Eucharist. And I hope that we will then get to uh, Jesus in the garden. Uh, and then, um, well, I'm planning on getting to Jesus in the garden. I'm hoping we then get to Pilate and the courtyard. So, um, let me read. So, we, we know that Jesus is um, having the Passover meal. It's the un- day of the unleavened bread, which on the Passover, uh, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. We know that Judas has betrayed Jesus, or he is, uh, Satan has already entered into him. He's going to betray Jesus, is what I mean. Uh, his heart is set in that direction. Excuse me. So starting at verse 14, And when the hour came, he reclined at table in the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Now, what do you know about the Passover? Not just the meal, but the actual event. Egypt, Egypt right, in Egypt. So, um, Joseph went down to Egypt, sold as a slave. Uh, his family followed him down there in a, um, in a famine. You know that whole story. 
And then um, Pharaoh, that Pharaoh dies, another Pharaoh comes, does not remember Joseph. 400 years later, they're in abject slavery. They're crying out to the Lord. The Lord chooses Moses, and um, Moses goes down. Nine plagues of really utter destruction. And Pharaoh's heart is hardened through them all. And God says, all right, I'm going to send this tenth plague. It's going to be the worst of all. And um, it is, uh, his heart will be opened in the sense that he is going to finally let you go. The tenth plague is the death of the firstborn. It is right to think of it as um, a preliminary, temporary judgment day. Uh, it is a judgment not just against Pharaoh, but against human sin. And in all the other plagues, we see, um, we see, the, uh, we, we see that the Israelites are um, held back from this judgment. They're, they don't have to do anything um, except now that, um, uh, now that this, there's this tenth plague, the Israelites are subject to it unless they follow God's instructions. So that's unique about this tenth plague. And we don't like thinking of God as a God of, of wrath, but what He says in the Passover is He's going to send the destroyer. I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a really big deal. And he is coming to judge uh, sin. And so, the, the most magnificent, awful, terrible, destructive force in the universe is sent by God. And what does God say will save the Israelites? A fluffy little lamb. <laughs> it seems kind of strange to think about how, um, how small, how humble this is. Uh, as a solution to, a, to the, God, the divine judgment. And yet, of course, it points us forward to Jesus. John the Baptist says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So the, the, what God says is that um, to Moses, tell the Israelites that they are to bring a lamb into their home. And then they are, after 14 days, to, they are to kill the lamb. And... They are to roast it, and they eat it in a certain way. And, and so there was a, you know, that might have been hard. I mean, think about it for the children particularly, because they, they had to spend time as, as their pet for a couple of weeks. There's a familiarity to the lamb. And they were to eat it, and every firstborn child who would be eating that lamb a familiar lamb would say, this lamb died in my place. And God said, now take some, take some of the blood of the lamb and put it over the doorpost of the house. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, that, that sounds gruesome. It sounds archaic to us. Nevertheless, they got the message, right? And God is in charge and we're going to follow His instruction so that we don't suffer the destruction uh, that He has promised. Fast forward. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Every child who partakes of that Lamb looks at that Lamb and says, this Lamb died 
uh, in my place. And God is still looking for the blood. And when He sees the blood of Jesus, He will pass over you. Right? That's, and so Jesus actually takes this Passover meal and gives it an, incre- uh, an entirely new meaning, or maybe I should say a fuller meaning. He says, I tell you, I will not eat... Um, of this again until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And so he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves, for I tell you that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And here's and so it's interesting in Luke, it's in Luke it's cup, bread, then cup again. It's the only one. But but then here's the part that we really uh, know and is so familiar to us, uh, particularly as liturgical Christians, as Episcopalians. He took the bread, when He had given thanks, He broke it, and He gave it to them, saying, This is My body, which is given for you. And that's straight out of Scripture. That's what we say every week. Do this in remembrance of Me. In other words, every time you take the bread, so I think, I mean, that's why we say the blessing at meals, right? I mean, it's, 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 this, it's reminding us of God and what He's um, given us. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, "This cup is poured out for you." Uh, in the this is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. Now I have to tell you that I often think of this. I don't want to say I think of this every time, but I often think of this when I am celebrating. The hand of the one who betrays me is on the table with me, right? Because it really is truly every time that I celebrate the Eucharist, the hand of the one who has betrayed him is on the table. Think about the grace that Jesus doesn't say, all right, listen, we're about to do this really important thing. Judas, get out of here so that we can have this meal. I know what's in your heart, your dark heart, where you're going to take the righteous ones. No, uh, for everyone, the betrayer, the denier, the deserters, they all receive this Passover meal. When I see the blood... I will pass over you. Uh, it is incredibly uh, significant. Um, I want to say a couple of things about the Eucharist for us. As this is, we consider the Eucharist a sacrament. You know, the def- definition of a sacrament is the uh, uh, outward, invisible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. And so, um, and so, the outward, invisible sign in the Eucharist, of course, is the bread and the wine. The inward grace is that we have received the truth that Jesus has died for us. That He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And um, what happens when I wave my hands over this bread and this wine, sanctify now this, this bread to be for us the body of uh, Christ and this wine to be for us the blood of Christ and the new covenant. What is happening there? Now, you may come and say, oh, I know what's happening, but the truth is, uh, you, uh, you, you, and you may, I'm going to kind of tell you sort of that the, there is a spectrum of belief about what happens to the bread and the wine. Some of you grew up in Roman Catholic backgrounds, and, and you understand, um, well, at least you grew up in a tradition that understands, that the bread and the wine become the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, I don't think that what they would say is that if you took it under a microscope, it would look like flesh and 
hemoglobin. I don't, I don't think that's what they're saying, but it is actually the body and blood of Jesus. It is not symbolic. It is the body and blood. That is called transubstantiation. Um, the substance has transformed, right? Now, am I saying, I don't want to be a, um, give offense to anyone who grew up in that tradition. Am I saying that sort of correctly? Am I just pretty, pretty close? Um, there is, on the other end of the spectrum is what we have called memorialism. Nothing happens to the bread and the wine, but we are doing this because Jesus said to do it. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Do this as oft as ye shall drink it in remembrance of me. And so we better do it. And it reminds us of his sacrifice, but there is nothing. As we can do grape juice, we can do bread, we can do crackers, whatever. It's not really that big of a deal. The more important thing is that we are remembering, we're memorializing this uh, ordinance that Jesus gave us. So that's the other end of the spectrum. Now, I've actually been told that sometimes in seminaries, that's, that's all they teach. It is or it isn't. But we're Anglicans. <laughs> So we find a middle way. So I'll tell you the Anglican perspective, and not surprisingly, there's a spectrum within Anglicanism. The Holy Spirit is in and upon the elements. It has become different. It has become consecrated. You take that under a microscope, it is bread and wine. But it is not... Uh, it, is, it is not just bread and wine because you can't see the Holy Spirit under a microscope. It is, um, we, we hold it as sacred. We reserve the sacrament that's left over. We uh, keep it in the um, tabernacle or ombre. It's called, we call it the tabernacle here. And that's what that red candle, the red candle means if, there's, if that's lit it means there is reserved sacrament in there. It is special. We only eat it or give it back to the earth. When there's leftover wine, we pour it down a sink that goes straight into the ground. Um, and uh, we either eat the, um, the wafers or I guess, I think they put them on the ground for the ducks to get or something. The, uh, or they put it in the river. But, it's, it, um, but usually it's just consumed So because it is special. But it is not flesh and blood. You have to have an element of faith. You have to, it is only the body and blood of Christ if you take it in faith. You've given yourself to Jesus. So if it's, if it's trans, transubstantiation, then you, what you need is, to, is the sacrament because it's the body and blood of Christ. Faith really isn't important. Whether you believe it or not, there's nothing different about the the bread and the wine, you need it. That's grace to you. From the other perspective, though, um, the, what we might call consubstantiation, or the Anglican, it, the, the, um, you have to have faith. You can, you can eat the bread till you're full or drink the wine till you're drunk. It is not the blood and, uh, body and blood of Christ to you if you don't believe, if you don't have an element of faith. So it has to have the consecration of the church, and it has to have the faith of the partaker. That might be called receptionism. You receive it in faith. Now some would say it's right up to tra transubstantiation and that faith is really not that important, but it's important, but it's not that important. Some may say it really doesn't become the body and blood until it comes into the mouth of the believer. Actually, both of those are fine to be Anglican. 
Because you have to have faith and you have to have the Holy Spirit. I appreciate so much about our tradition that really the culmination of the service is in the Eucharist, not in the sermon. The sermon is an important part. I think it's one of the most important things that I do as a priest. Maybe the most important thing that I do as a priest is to preach. And yet, when it, says, when it comes down to it, I step down, step behind the altar, and I say the words that are not my own, but have been said for generations and generations before me in a long, long line. This is my body. This is my blood. So it really is... I love our balance of word and sacrament. That's one of the sort of hallmarks of Anglicanism. Word and sacrament. Sir. Yes, ma'am. I knew you yourself were changed. You yourself were changed at the time you stepped behind and you become a part of that holiness. Well... So you yourself are actually changed. ML has said that when I step behind that altar, that I am changed and I become a part of that holiness. And I would, um, as much as I love you and respect you and lift you up as a hallmark of a pillar of faith in this church, I respectfully disagree with you. I, um, I often uh, pray with fear and trembling. I, feel, I step in the, in the pulpit pretty confident. Um, I mean, not overly confident, but pretty confident. But with... with um, with fear and trembling, I, when I'm Trent setting the table and I'm sitting there praying, I am saying I'm not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. The one the, who has betrayed, the hand of the one who betrayed him is on the... Now, I know what you mean. Like, I'm a, I become a vessel, but it has everything to do with His grace. And I am set apart by the church, but I promise you there's not because I have any... So my parents are sitting right there. Ask them. And my wife. Ask her. Like, there's nothing about me that made this made me uh, holy. Yeah, that is that is the uh, table of uh, confidence over there. So, um, yeah, sissy. Yeah, well, that, that is something that I've added over the years myself. This is the body broken for you because He loves you. And it's liturgically incorrect, but it's still true. All right. Now, why don't I say, crack the bread, Christ, our Passover, is sacrificed for us. Why don't I? Therefore, let us keep the feast. Hallelujah. Why don't I do that? I don't do it. But Why? Why not? You're just like, I don't know, because you forget. You're a, um, no, it is because I think the language is confusing. Christ, our Passover, is, and He always is, sacrificed for us. It is the perfect tense. But it looks like, when I do that, crack. He's sacrificed for us. It looks like I'm saying He's re-sacrificed for us. In, the, in my breaking of the bread, He is sacrificed for us. And I never want to give the impression... And I think the liturgy is a little, little squirrely on that point. I never want to get the impression that, that He was not sacrificed once for our sins, once for all. Right? And so only on Monday, Thursday do I say it, because that's the time. You know, that's the Last Supper. And then it's kind of confusing, because you're like, oh, wait a second, I'm not used to saying that. And, and then you do it. But it's, hopefully it's jarring enough. Um, but, but that's why, if you've ever wondered, why, don't, why didn't our priest say, Hallelujah, Christ is our Passover... Because He is sacrificed for us, but He is and He always is. And I've known priests who change the liturgy, who say, Christ our Passover was sacrificed for us. Or Christ our Passover has been sacrificed for us. 
and I know I just said I changed the liturgy because I say he loves us when I do the bread, but if I, if I don't, the, the rubrics actually give me the option to say, or, or, to say it or not say it, and so I just take the option not to say it. Because I, he was sacrificed 2,000 years ago, once for all. And we are memorializing it, and it becomes the body and blood of Christ. That's what we say in the prayer of humble access, that it, um, which is the prayer after that in the right one service. We don't do that in the right two service. That it may be unto us the body of... But it, it is, but it is unto us because we are coming in, in faith. Right? Okay. So, that's the Eucharist. That's the Lord's uh, Supper. And I think it is just so cool that in His great wisdom that God gave us this meal on the night before He died. I think it's so cool that because I would have just been like, dude, I'm about to, we got to get out of here, and and I wouldn't have done anything like that, or I might have said, well, let's do it a month ahead of time or whatever. But it, it it is so special to us because it was in the context of His passion, and because He gave us this memorial that we take every week, and I just love it so much. And I um and the truth is, I mean, you've heard me say this before. I, I'm a word guy. I was sort of converted to Christianity. I mean, I was a Christian, but I sort of became, became a Christian in a, in a in young life, and, and those folks were Presbyterians, and it was sort of wandering back into Episcopalianism um, that I found that balance of Word and Sacrament. But without that balance, I'd probably run off and just be a Word guy. And so I'm so grateful for our tradition that it gives us both. It highlights, really, and that's why you see even uh, in our architecture, the, the pulpit and the, and the lectern and the altar are all on the same level. Now the altar is central, but they're all on the same level. Now, if you look at some of like old Protestant churches, the the the, um, the way elevated the, the pulpit is because of the elevation of the word over the sacrament. That's very intentional. And so I really and I, and I appreciate that tradition. But I um, and then there's some where the you know, the you might get a little uh, plastic lectern over here, and it's just a giant you know ivory. Um, you know, or golden altar or something like that. That's elevating the sacrament over the uh, over the word. But I love our tradition, and I think our architecture. Thank you, Lamar Drake, is really uh, excellent in, in that uh, balancing. Is that really, where the difference is a lot of, between a lot of the churches. We all believe the same, but the idea that um, what you were talking about is is that. <clears throat> so different than what other churches believe in. Susie asked, is that really the difference between the churches? And, and, and really, I mean, you know, there's lots and lots of differences. I will say this. In the Reformation, which you know, I love the Reformation. Um, they all came, all the sort of leaders of the Reformation came together, Martin Luther and not Calvin yet, but, but a, a lot of them came together. And they went through, I believe it was 17 points of doctrine and they agreed on 16 of them that Martin Luther would not concede that the elements aren't the body and blood of Christ. The legend says that he, had, he took his, uh, the foam out of his ale, out of his jug, and wrote on the, uh, on the table, he said, this is my body, and wrote est. You know, and they were speaking in Latin, and, and anyway, it's just, I think that's really cool. I've never written anything in beer foam, but um, <laughs> it's a great way to testify to the, the Lord. And, but that's why, that's why the, um, that's, that's why today there's, there's Lutherans, and, I mean, there's multiple Protestant denominations, because in that moment, Luther wouldn't give on that. There's always been a spectrum. I, you know, I, yes, is that the main difference? No, it's, I mean, there's lots and lots of differences, and, um, 
and what did you, I mean, so it's important. We don't want to get tied up in the differences other than, is Jesus the Lord? Is he the Son of God? Is he the Son of God? Did he die for our sins? Is Scripture the Word of God? Now, everything else we can talk about. So, um, so they have the, the Last Supper, and then they go out uh, into the garden. And there's so much more to say about uh, the dispute they have about who's the greatest. Like, maybe not the best time, guys. Um, and the, um, the Peter's denial. But he goes out uh, to pray uh, in the garden. And he came and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. Now what in the world is going on there? Because this is the Son of God, whose will ought to be perfectly in line with the Father's. Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Now, all throughout the Old Testament, when the uh, and I think specifically of Isaiah 51, uh, where uh, we we read about the cup of judgment, but there's lots of lots of passages that talk about the cup of judgment. That's what he's talking about. If he's going to drink it to the dregs, the cup of God's wrath. And um, this is what Isaiah 51 says. Wake yourself, wake yourself. Stand up, O Jerusalem, who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of His wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering. And then Jesus says, Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Now I think this is less about the humanness of Jesus than it is about the sonship of Jesus. We think in the humanness of Jesus, Jesus saying, I don't want to die, but I will if you want me to. In fact, a lot of people have faced their death with a lot more bravado and courage than Jesus seems to. What is it about this death that has Jesus so concerned that He comes to the point of sweating blood? I actually have some information about that, or I thought I did. Yes, there is a a um, medical condition called hematohydrosis. Yes. It's a very rare physical condition in which capillary blood vessels that feed the sweat glands rupture, causing them to exude blood, occurring under ex- conditions of extreme physical or emotional stress. Acute fear and intense mental contemplation are the most frequent causes. What is it? And I think that what is going on in Jesus' heart and mind, not my will but yours be done, is the Son is saying to the Father, we created this whole universe together. I was in the beginning. I am now and will be forevermore. And what's about to happen is that I, as the Son of God, am about to be separate from the God the Father for the first and hopefully the last time in all of eternity. There is not just, it's not the same as if you and I were facing our execution, which would be terrible enough, but that he is facing a cosmic separation that goes to the very fabric of the universe. 
The Son of God. I mean, remember, he says, I and the Father are one. The Son of God is facing down the reality that He is going to be separate from the Father. I mean, 1 Corinthians says, He who knew no sin became sin for us so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The Father turns His back on the Father. I mean, it turns His back on the Son so that He can turn His face to us. What happens on the cross is that Jesus becomes our sin and God the Father takes, uh, he turns His back on Him so that He can turn His face towards us. He can't look on our sin, so Jesus takes our sin from us. He turns His back on the Son. And that, separ- that cosmic separation is what um, Jesus is so afraid of. Now, what happens to the Trinity on Friday afternoon? I don't know. I mean, some theologians will argue that the Trinity was rent asunder. And some will argue, absolutely not, because the Trinity cannot be broken. Nevertheless, Jesus, there was some separation. I know that I'm going to my, to, to be, you know, He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He called out, the skies were silent. That's what Jesus is afraid of. Nevertheless, not my will but yours be done. So he is stating in the garden that he is willing to endure even this cosmic separation so that you and I can be, have fellowship with God. That's what he endured. Not just, not just the cross and the, the flogging that we, you know, we saw in Mel Gibson's movie and it's just so awful and, 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 it's, and it's true. But it's not just the pain or the prospect of death, but the separation from the Father. It's pretty remarkable if you think about it. So that's the, that's the night before. What happens then is the, um, if we can flip over to John 18. See how I'm doing on my time here. This is the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. John 18. When Jesus had spoken these words, He went out with His disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which He and His disciples entered. And now Judas, who betrayed Him, also knew the place where Jesus often met there with His disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. And Jesus, knowing all that would happen to Him, a very important little nugget there. Jesus, knowing all that would happen to them, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? Jesus came forward. He stepped into the betrayal. And I just love that. I mean, because I, again, the hand of the one who's betrayed him is on the table. I am so grateful that Jesus, did, he didn't say, Joe, clean up your act. He stepped into the betrayal. Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am He. And um, when Jesus said to them, I am he, he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And if Joe Gibbs was your Savior, I would have just said, I am He. I am He. I am He. And run off. <laughs> just, just, just pushed Him on down the mountain. Now interestingly, I am He is the word uh, in Greek, uh, ego eimi. I am. 
Another statement in the book of John about the divinity of Christ. Who is, remember Moses at the burning bush, who shall I say sent me? Tell them I am sent you. This is, um, now that's the right way to say I am He. Uh, I, it's me. I'm, I'm Jesus. But again, just a, a, a nugget from John. I am He. I am the Lord. And yet, he, so He doesn't do what I would have done. He doesn't push Him down the mountain and run off. He stands right there and says, I asked you again, who are you looking for? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And He says, I told you, I'm He. So if you seek Me, let these men go. Isn't that so gracious? Not, to arms, to arms! Because He has come to earth for this moment. His whole cosmic life was aiming to this moment. And he's not, I mean, he's not, he's not trying to get away like you and I would. But he's certainly trying to get, uh, keep his disciples from harm. Let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon, having a sword, drew it and struck the ear of the high priest's servant, cut off his right ear. Uh, this servant's name was Malchus. Good old Peter. Impetuous Peter. Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? The very cup that He said, If, it would, if there's any way. If there's just any way. But I know there's not. This is mine to drink. The cup so of wrath. So was that him talking rather than Jesus? If you were to think you could separate it, but if there's any other way, I mean... That sounds human. That doesn't. No, what I'm saying is, I think that was the son, the sonship of Jesus, saying, "If there's any other way for us to not be separate." Oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I think. Um, and we go forward at, into this, and of course, they, uh, you can read it for yourself. You know the story. We just went through it, but um, one thing I really didn't highlight at Good Friday this this year was Barabbas, mm-hmm. and I love to talk about Barabbas. Because, uh, and I always tell, like, the way I like to think of it is Barabbas is sitting, sitting in his cell, awaiting his execution, and he can hear the mob and through the muffled through the stones, and they're calling out, crucify him, crucify him, and then they hear, Barabbas, and, and he's going, oh, you know, gosh, and they come, and they, the guards come and get him, and they, they drag him out into the sunlight, and he looks across, and he sees this other man with a crown of thorns on his head who's carrying his own Barabbas' cross. And the guards let Barabbas go and say, you're free, and Jesus takes off on Barab- with Barabbas' cross and heads. I mean, that's substitutionary atonement right there. That is, that is Jesus being the substitute for Barabbas, and we're all Barabbas. And that's, that's, the, good, that's the good news, is that He's carried our cross. And so, um, and that's, I'm going to end it uh, there. Uh, I'd like to talk about a little bit about Pilate asking what is truth, but um, we'll have to leave that for another time. I've got time for about one, one or two comments or questions. Yes, Jim. On this Passover thing, we didn't have the internet, didn't have newspapers. How'd they spread that word, and how'd they keep it from the Egyptians? How did they spread the word? Throughout the land, well, they had four, they had a month to do it. It wasn't just one night. He said, "Get everybody ready," you know, within two hours. I mean, it was they had a long time to do it. So, word of mouth, I guess. 
gather everybody into the into the councils of their tribes and I mean I'm sure that the word of mouth somewhere along the line a bunch of Egyptians would have picked up on it also. Well you might think I don't have an answer for that. Okay. Would would the Egyptians have picked up on that too? They just wouldn't have believed it. Well they wouldn't have believed it probably yeah. That's a good point. Ra would save them, yeah. So there's some, you know, I, I don't, but, but in, in fact, the Israelites had such favor in the eyes of the people. The people were terrified of them. They, that's why, you know, when they built the temple, I mean, the tabernacle with all the gold and everything, it's gold that the Egyptians gave them on the way out. They're just throwing all their wealth at them. They plundered the land of Egypt. That was all God's doing and God's will. So. Um, but thank you. That's a that's a good a good point. Or they may have just had the internet back then, and <laughs> it got lost with it got lost in the architectural plans with the pyramids. They had women back then. Yes, yes. Happy Mother's Day. All right. Um, that's going to have to do it for us today. God bless you. Happy Mother's Day, and um, and go to church.